Good morning. So great to be with you today. I was thinking about last time I taught, I got to teach on suffering. Today I get to teach on anger. So I started getting angry. No. (laughs) You know, because here's why. What came out to me so much working on this lesson was the fact that, praise the Lord, We have Christ because to live through life with anger like so many people do because they don't know Christ, what a horrible way to live. But we have this hope that God is always changing us. God loves us. It's just a great, wonderful thing to remember. So I was thankful after this lesson. We're going to look at what seems to be behind our anger, compare righteous and unrighteous anger, and that way hopefully we can make changes that will bless our lives, bless others around us. Um, I've told this story before, uh, so if you've heard it, you just have to hear it again. When I first married Ted, I, I like love popcorn. That's my favorite thing, but you have to make it on the stove. I don't want that microwave popcorn. And so he was out one night, and we were just married, and I I was looking through his junky bachelor pots and pans and found this giant one, because I usually make a lot when I make it, and this one had a lid that screwed on it. And I thought, that is so cool. That will be perfect for making popcorn. (laughs) I unscrewed the lid of the pressure cooker which I'd never seen in my life, poured my popcorn kernels in it, screwed it back tight, and just thought, this is so cool, listening to the popcorn, popping inside the pressure cooker. I did think it was kind of weird, the stuff coming out of the top of the lid, the steam. So then when that popcorn was done, I just went over and unscrewed the top of that popcorn lid. Bam! Boom! <laughs> I mean, I almost had a heart attack. It was an explosion. Popcorn flew in the air, covered my entire kitchen. It was a great awakening for me on what a pressure cooker is. It is not to make popcorn. But I thought about that because I thought, have you known people in your life who are pressure cookers? Have you ever been a pressure cooker? It's scary to be around those kind of people. And it's damaging, and it's hurtful, and it's wrong. In fact, I think uncontrolled anger has really blemished Christianity for Christians who, who are those pressure cookers out there in the world. It's not what God desires. So what is behind our anger? Okay, and I don't want those of you who have your anger inward, you explode inwardly, Those people, you can't get off easy here either. uh, Because your inner anger is eventually going to show up. It's either going to become depression, manipulation, accusation, selfishness. It's going to come out eventually like the people who explode. So both our sinful exploding anger outside, our sinful exploding anger inside, needs to be submitted to God for him to investigate. So before we look at the what's of anger, I want to look at the why's. And you knew in your lesson today that I feel that pride is an invisible catalyst for a visible anger. 
If you go to the Word of God, you look at examples of unrighteous anger, you learn that underneath the surface of their anger often is the sin of pride. In fact, pride means to boil over or to run over like a pot of hot boiling water. One man described it as a raging arrogance. Proverbs 13.10 on your verse sheet says, Through pride comes nothing but strife. Pride only breeds quarrels. So if you look in the Old Testament and you see angry illustrations, you see when Cain was mad at his brother Abel because God accepted Abel's sacrifice, and so in his anger, Cain kills his brother. That's pride. When Saul has David sitting across from him in the room and he's, Saul is listening to people sing wonderful praises about David. So in his anger, Saul throws a spear and tries to pin David against the wall. That is pride. Later on, when David gathers his men together to kill everyone in the household of Nabal because he refused to honor David, that was pride. And when Jonah got mad at God because he was showing mercy on the people of Nineveh. That was pride. And Jesus, in the New Testament, faced pride everywhere that he went. The pride of the religious leaders is very obvious from the moment Jesus is born until the moment that he goes to the cross. And so during his three years of public ministry, the pride of the religious angers grew into such a deepening anger that they began to plot to take this man's life. And I want to look at a parable today that Jesus taught so pride can be defined for us and have a deeper understanding of it so that when we realize I'm really wrestling with anger in my life, we can sort of evaluate what part pride might be playing with it. Now, I want to say this. The man of pride in the story we're going to look at, he's a Pharisee, and he is just like us. He was unaware of his pride. And apart from God's Spirit, we are also unaware. But when we take our anger to God, he uses our anger to expose the pride that is lurking inside of us. I I have this fun drive I've mentioned to go home to Alito most days, and it's this long country road, and I always love it because there's these tall grasses on the side that blow in the wind, and there's wild flowers. And one day, I'm taking that ride, and I look, and really, almost as long as a block on the side of the road that I've been loving, our trash is trash, and empty bottles, and containers, and bags for like a whole block. And my first thought was, who put that there? And I was upset. Who would go along this beautiful road and dump their trash in a perfect line for about a block? And then I realized it's been there all along, but they cut the grass down. It had been there all along. Sometimes our anger, God says, let me expose the pride and sin that has been there all along. We have to take our anger to God. I love, I thought about the story of Martha and Mary in Luke 10. We looked at that in church not too long ago. Martha did just that, and I think it's a good example for us. Martha's mad at her sister Mary. Jesus and a crowd are in their house. 
Martha's doing all the work. She's doing everything in the kitchen. She thinks, I'm going to let Jesus know, and Jesus is going to justify my feelings. She goes to Jesus. She says, don't you care that I'm doing all the work? Tell her to help me. Jesus uses it as an opportunity to expose the sin that is dwelling within Martha. And instead, he says to her, you know, you are worried and bothered about so many things. Only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen it, which is sitting at my feet and learning from me. This shall never be taken away from her. And when Martha got up and left the presence of Christ, she was a wiser woman. That's what happens. That's the good news for us as Christians. We don't have to be angry people. God wants to work with us. Luke 18, 9 through 12, we're going to look on our verse sheet. I cannot find my verse sheet. Can someone hand me one? (laughs) Thank you. And Jesus told them this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and prayed about himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes of all that I get. On your verse sheet, a prideful person has a mistaken self-esteem. They see themselves as better than others. I thought that was really interesting in verse 9. He viewed others with contempt. He saw himself better. A I'm better than you attitude breeds contempt towards others. That's what this verse says. I'm reading a book by Brendan Manning, and he tells this most interesting story. He's an interesting guy because he's definitely lived um, a crazy life, loved the Lord, a great author, um, but at one time in his life, he was a homeless alcoholic. And he tells a story of lying in a sidewalk, waking up one morning where he'd been drunk the night before. Someone has stolen his shoes. And uh, an attractive young woman, a mom with her little boy, is walking along. And the boy sees Brennan lying there. And so he runs over. And he's staring at him because he's never seen anything like this, staring on the ground. Well, the mother gets scared. She runs next to him and says, don't even look at him. That is nothing but pure filth. And then she kicked him and broke two of his ribs. And when I read the story, I thought, why'd you have to kick him? I mean, just walk away. You know why? Because when you have a superior attitude, it breeds contempt for others. And in her anger, she kicked him and broke his ribs and then went on her way. Secondly, we learn from verse 9, a prideful person has a misplaced trust. Did you notice that on the verse? He trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with content. They're trusting in themselves to be a success in this world, 
They're trusting in themselves and their righteous acts to carry this on into the next world. And they think in heaven, they're going to be at the head of the class. They are more than just proud of their achievements and what's happened in their life and what they've accomplished. They are resting their salvation upon it. And in doing so, they are negating the work of Christ on the cross. And they also negate the works of others in their lives. This is the kind of person who wrestles with being submissive to others, wrestles with following others, esteeming others, learning from others. That makes them angry because I am fine all by myself. Thank you very much. We also learn in these verses a prideful person practices misguided comparison. They have a false confidence based on shortcomings of others. This Pharisee, when we just read that, where did he get his confidence? He looked around and compared himself to people around him, and guess what? He came out on top every time. That was his plan. And playing the comparison game, it keeps us blind to our own sins. So when someone might mention one to us, it doesn't go very well. A prideful person has a misdirected agenda as well. They desire to glorify themselves, and God really isn't in their thoughts. Now, this person thinks he knows the Lord, so it's not like this is some uh, person who is denying there is a God. There are a lot of Christians who function this way. Uh, The Pharisee, if you'll notice in those passages, use the pronoun I five times in those two verses. Who is on his mind? Even though he's in the presence of God, who is on the mind of the Pharisee? He's thinking about himself. It's almost like he's thinking, God, you should be grateful to me for how good a guy I am. In that verse, it just threw me away. It says, he went up to pray, and he prayed about himself to God. Again, get out of the way of the prideful person that doesn't get the accolades that they think that they deserve. That brings anger. And if I stopped here today, we could all go home and feel sad because if you're like me, you think I do all those things at different times. And it's true. That's why we, this is a journey. This is a time of sanctification until we get to be with God that he's totally changing us. But we will have these issues of pride, but God can make a difference. In fact, I'm going to tell you a story. I hope you still like me afterwards. Um, I was 28 years old. I'm burying my soul here. And I had uh, my daughter, Cassie, was three at the time. I had a dear friend. She doesn't live in Fort Worth anymore. And uh, she adored Cassie. And so she talked about her all the time and did it when I was around a lot, probably because she was trying to honor me. It was, a, it was a kind thing. But here's what she would say. We'd be around a group of people, and she'd say, you have to meet Cassie. She is cute. She is funny. She is outgoing. She has so much personality. She's just like her dad. <laughs> now, the first time I heard it, I was okay. I thought, okay, that, that's okay. But, but the list began to grow. And the story began to grow. And she did this many times whenever there was a group of people. So I'm standing next to her. The list is growing. She's creative. She's intelligent. 
She could do anything. She's beyond what you can imagine. So outgoing, so much personality, just like her dad. And in my heart was a little pride anger beginning to grow. And as the list grew and I heard the story, I made the bad mistake of not evaluating the pride that was coming into my heart. So on the day that we went to a conference together, and I didn't get any sleep one night, what was in here came out here. And this was very sad because we, we were at this conference. It isn't funny, but... <laughs> there were like 10 of us sitting around a big round table. I didn't know any of these women, and we're in a restaurant. And my friend didn't know these women either. So she starts her story. And it's really long now, and it goes on. And when she's done, I hear someone yelling at her. And I'm like, who is that? Then I realize it's coming from me. <laughs> and I'm saying stupid things like, why do you keep saying that? Do you know how that makes me feel? What about me? The restaurant gets dead silent. There is not a sound. <laughs> These women's faces who we didn't know, they just stopped eating and dropped their forks. And my sweet friend, her face has gone pale, and she excuses herself and runs to the bathroom. And so I, I literally spent the rest of the day following her around, asking her to forgive me all day long. She finally said, stop asking me. I've forgiven you. It's over. This was all about pride. So what's an angry sinner to do? Here's what we do. First, we ask. We ask ourselves these questions. What part is pride playing in my anger? Am I jealous? Do I feel overlooked? Am I forced to face my shortcomings? Do I have a feeling of superiority? Am I comparing? Do I feel unappreciated? Am I having to admit that I have needs? Ask ourselves. Stop and ask ourselves. And then we ask God. He is more than happy to teach us. Romans 8 tells us on your verse sheet, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And then ask others. Not always necessary, but if you have a friend who's going to be honest with you, and not just make you feel better, ask your friend, what part do you see pride in, my, in how I'm handling this? And then confess, we all know that, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, he will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. And let me read a verse from James 4 that deals with pride. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and then He will exalt you. It hurts at first. 
It's joy afterwards. And then we have to trust that God can change our heart, that he hasn't disqualified us, that he has forgiven us, that he still loves you, and then we let him lift our heart. Martha, after she went to Jesus, expecting him to feel sorry for her, instead he exposes her sins, she was still dear to Jesus. He had wonderful plans for her future and blessed her. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Okay, so if inner pride breeds outer anger, then inner humility brings the blessing of God and the ability to walk wisely. Um, I think humble people wrestle with anger too, but I think they identify it quicker. Uh, They go to God faster. They seek forgiveness from others. And these kind of people are not known for their anger, but for their wisdom and for their godliness. Proverbs 11.2 tells us, When pride comes, comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Psalm 26, He guides the humble in what is right, and He teaches them His way. And so we can look through the Old Testament again and see examples of humble people. Now, these people responded in a way where the fleshly person would have responded in anger. I thought about Joseph. His brothers hate him. They throw him in a pit. He gets sold. He's sent away from his father, whom he loved, lived in Egypt. When they come face to face with him later, he forgives them. That is humility. When Job lost his family and he lost his health and everyone said, curse God and die, and he refused, that was humility. When David finds his enemy Saul asleep in a cave where he could have easily killed him in anger, but he chose not to, that was humility. Jesus, you can think of some of the stories in the New Testament When he faced people who had humility, he loved it. He rejoiced over them, the sinners, the lepers, the crippled Samaritans. He was always commending the humble and condemning the proud. And so when we look at the rest of this parable, he gives us a definition of humility. He used a tax collector. This was someone the Israelites hated. They hated a tax collector because he was a disloyal Jew. He was hired by the Romans, who the Jews despised, to gather taxes from the Jewish people. And then he would sort of pad what he collected and pocket extra. So the tax collectors were Jewish, they were dishonestly wealthy, and the Jews saw them as traitors and the worst kind of sinners. Let's see what Jesus says. Luke 18:13. On your verse sheet. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I put down a humble person examines who they are by knowing who God is. They see their sinfulness because they see God's righteousness. It was so apparent to the tax collector, he couldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven to look at the righteousness of God. 
His standard of righteousness was God. The Pharisee's standard of righteousness was himself. He looked at the goodness of God. He looked at himself, realized he fell short, and so he postures himself in a posture of humility with his head bowed and beating his chest in shame. And he goes before God and proclaims his sinfulness before a holy God. A humble person trusts in the mercy of God alone. God's mercy is their only hope. The tax collector knew there's nothing I can do, there's nothing action I can take to increase my standing in the eyes of God. Only God's mercy and grace could deliver him from his sins. In fact, I read a um, fun poem about Mary Magdalene, another person who had nothing to bring to God. Mary Magdalene at Michael's gate, standing at the pin on Joseph Thorne, sang the blackbird, let her in, let her in. Well, have you seen the wounds, said Michael? Do you know as to your sin? It is evening, evening, sang the blackbird, let her in. Let her in. Yes, I've seen the wounds, and I know my sin. She knows it well, 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 sang the blackbird. Let her in. Let her in. But you bring no offerings, said Michael. Nothing except your sin. And the blackbird sang, she is sorry, sorry, sorry. Let her in. Let her in. And when he had sung himself to sleep, and night did begin... One came and opened Michael's gate, and Mary Magdalene went in with no offering. No offering, nothing to give God, except the fact that she depended on his mercy alone. If pride is a catalyst for anger, humility is a means for wisdom and peace because the humble person walks under the blessing of God. Look at Luke 18, 14. The end of the parable, Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Speaking of the tax collector. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Let me read to you James 1. It's about anger, humility, and pride. James says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, because the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Put aside filthiness and wickedness, and in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. Here's what I loved about that verse. He uses humility and mentions it's a means to set anger aside. James says, receive that humility. Jesus teaches a lot about unrighteous anger. Early in his ministry, he gave a sermon on the mount. He spoke on a high hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And uh, it was a moment like nothing else had ever happened. All these hundreds and hundreds of people listening to this man named Jesus speaking about the righteousness of God in a way that they had never heard in their whole life life. They were used to the self-righteousness 
of the rule-keeping religious leaders. So when Jesus was speaking about what true righteousness looks like, his words were falling on the ears of people who had become used to the idea that I'm justified before God by how I act, by what my actions are. This included their views on anger. They believed, as long as I treat someone like the law tells me to treat him, then I'm in the clear. I'm guiltless. I'm good to go. Jesus, standing on the mount, makes even anger a heart issue. And so while the clouds floated by, while the grasses and the wildflowers moved along in the breeze, Jesus exposes the anger in their hearts on the side of this mountain. Turn with me to Matthew 5. Matthew 5, 21. You have heard it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Okay, Jesus talks about three different angers in these verses, and they have increasing degrees of punishment. The first case, he's implying someone who is angry with his brother without a cause. Verse 22. So Jesus says, you're angry with your brother without a reason. Okay, you are guilty of murder. Now, imagine these people sitting on the hillside and hearing these words, because they probably all had somebody in their hearts that they were angry at. And you will be judged in the local court, the village court. Now, they knew this. The law had said in Exodus 20, Thou shalt not murder. And they knew then that murder was wrong. But no longer could they take pride in having never committed murder. Because Jesus was saying, anger in your heart is as guilty as murder. An inner attitude of anger is as wrong as an outer display of anger. The next form of anger is insulting your brother. If you call your brother Raka, judgment there is you're to go to the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land. Now, Raka means empty head. So maybe today it would be like calling someone a dummy or a nitwit or an idiot, something like that. Uh, In that time, it was a word of great contempt to call someone a Raka. So here we learn something else about uh, holding on to our anger, that on your outline, anger will grow a feeling of superiority in our hearts. Unresolved anger makes us begin to think we're better than other people. That's why you can call them names. The last form of anger is to call someone a fool. Now, we think, okay, Raka sounds worse than fool. A fool was condemning someone to damnation. A fool was calling on God to consign this individual to be a victim of hell. And we have phrases we say today 
uh, in anger, hopefully none of us in this room, but you've heard those phrases that are so severe, uh, basically damning people to go to hell uh, in their lifetime and stay there. This was answerable to God. This was the judgment. In fact, they talk about dangers of the fires of hell. Fires of hell, literally there, when you translate it, means the Valley of Gehenna. And what that means is they had a big dump outside the city of Jerusalem that they kept constantly burning. This is an awful picture. And if you were a criminal and you were executed and killed, then they just carried your body and they dumped it into the Valley of Gehenna to be burned. It's constantly burning. When Jesus told this story and mentioned the Valley of Gehenna, they knew exactly what he meant. It was a a visual of eternity in hell. Now... We know that these graduations of punishment from the village court to the Supreme Court Sanhedrin to the court of God himself, this wasn't going to take place literally after Jesus spoke these words. Here's what his point was. In the kingdom, God will deal with sin according to its severity, both the outer behavior and the inner behavior. Anger contains the seeds of murder. Abusive language contains the spirit of murder. Cursing language contains the very desire to murder. And I read all this and thought, woe to those who haven't received the righteousness of Christ because that would be the way that we would go as well. I read this quote, even if we've lived a life of moral perfection outwardly, There is none who can say that they have never experienced forbidden desires for wrong things. For inner perfection, there is only one thing that is enough for a man to say, that he himself is dead and Christ lives in him. That is true. What does Jesus expect us to do when we're wrestling with anger? On your outline, reconciliation is our responsibility, regardless of the guilty party. In fact, Ephesians 4.26 says, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. It's our job. Look at Matthew 5.23. Jesus says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and then you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who has taken you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus is saying here in verse 23, it doesn't matter if you're the innocent person in verse 25, or you're the offending brother. The first step of reconciliation has to take place. It's our responsibility. Otherwise, two things will happen. Harboring anger, he says, will hurt our relationship with God. God doesn't want us at his altar when we're harboring anger towards others. He is more interested in our obedience, our holy conduct, than a formal type of worship with him. Secondly, unresolved anger on your outline brings future troubles. That's what the end of this 
part of the story was about. He talks about going to court, ending up in prison. And I think, when I have unresolved anger in my heart, I am in prison as well. It takes me a long time to figure it out. (laughs) We create our own kind of prison when we don't deal with anger. Jesus demonstrates what righteous anger is. Turn a couple books over to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, and he drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? And his disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. You read these stories about Jesus cleansing the temple. He actually began his ministry cleansing the temple and ended his ministry cleansing the temple. This story in John is at the beginning of his ministry. And the first time he cleansed the temple, he caught the Jews by great surprise. This unknown man from who knows where has come in and overturned and upset our whole system here. The second time he did it at the end of his ministry, it was an immediate cause to bring him to his death. How do we know if our anger is righteous or not? I read one quote I liked. Anger is justified only when God's honor is at stake or when someone else is being wronged. It is never right when expressed in retaliation for personal wrongs. Righteous anger is focused on God and the things of God. It's all about God. It's not about us. That's the first way to get a handle on if your anger is righteous or not. Jesus was angry because he wanted the worship of God to be pure and he was jealous for the holiness of God's house. So he's on his way to celebrate Passover, the big feast of the Jews. And he's with many pilgrims. They're walking along. If you were a 12-year-old boy... Or older, you were on your way to Jerusalem, too, to celebrate Passover. And people came from long ways. So when Jesus turned a corner, and he was excited to be at the temple, and he was excited to worship with the Jews, and instead, he sees a giant marketplace. Now you have to picture, here's the temple, the outer courts around it, the courts of the Gentiles, are filled with loud animals, stinky animals, lots of smells, lots of sounds, lots of people. You see money, you see coins flashing in the sunlight. It is a market. It is not a place of worship. Now, the reason they had animals and money changers there was because, as I said, people came from a long distance. So they would think, I don't want to bring my sacrifice, this lamb, all the way on a day's or two days journey or whatever it would take. So I will purchase my sacrifice when I get there. 
they had foreign currency often, so they had to exchange their money because you also were supposed to pay a tax to the temple, and uh, it had to be a certain currency. So people saw great ways to use the Passover as a time of profit in their lives. They could get a lot of money, and that was the attitude. And people were cheating each other out of uh, money and um, behaving in very materialistic ways. It seemed convenient, but worship was being corrupted. Malachi had predicted that one will come suddenly to the temple to purify the worship of the nation. Jesus was that one. But does he run in, out of control? He, was he a pressure cooker? Did he explode? Did he just take off? Did he cause everybody to have heart attacks and run around? No, because he made a whip. If he made a whip, he sat down and thought about his plan. He wasn't reactionary. He was controlled. Righteous anger involves patience. It's not impulsive. It's not defensive. That's how we act when we're acting fleshly. He took drastic steps, but they were controlled steps. It took him a while to make the whip. Now, I don't think when he came in there, and neither does anyone else I've read about, think that he hurt anyone with the whip. The whip was a sign of authority that he had the right to come into his father's house and take care of what should have been true and pure worship and was turned into a center of greed. So I think he just waved that whip around, and that's all you have to do with an animal to get it to get up and, and take off. It was a symbol of his authority. Righteous anger has holy intentions. His intention was not to hurt anyone. His intention was to get God's house back to what it was supposed to be all about. A righteous angler, anger wants to accomplish something for God. A fleshly anger wants to accomplish something for me. I wanted to close with this wonderful truth that Jesus saved us from the anger of God. We know we've all sinned. We know we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We know that the wrath of God is upon those that he will judge. But when Jesus began his public ministry and he went to his cousin John and John decided to make that announcement and present him to the people around and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And as Jesus stood there, he was presenting himself to us who would, for us, take God's wrath upon himself. Look at Romans 5 on your verse. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We are thankful. We praise God. And guess what? One way we can demonstrate our thankfulness to God is to remember God loved us greatly while we were yet sinners, and I'm going to treat other people that are sinners 
with that same kind of compassion. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Um, We come to you with empty hands. We thank you for the blood of Christ. We thank you you are not angry with us, but we are your children. I pray we would walk in your goodness, walk in truth, and we would be people of love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.